now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Dr. Eben Alexander. Dr. Alexander was an academic neurosurgeon for over 25 years, and as most of you already know, he had a near-death experience during a week-long coma from an inexplicable brain infection that completely transformed his worldview. Dr. Alexander is the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Proof of Heaven, as well as The Map of Heaven and Living in a Mindful Universe. Dr. Alexander, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today and welcome. Well, Jeff, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. You know, Dr. Alexander, if anybody could be considered a rock star of NDEs, that would be you. And since everybody pretty much knows your experience already, I'm hoping that we can just kind of go right into the nuts and bolts of NDEs, consciousness, and more. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm happy to do exactly that. And uh, I would just point out that from my point of view, uh, one of the greatest gifts of sharing my story is other people share their NDEs with me. That has been uh, terrifically affirming and validating over the last 13 years since my coma. So I would not call myself a rock star of NDEs at all. I'm, my case is really uh, important to the scientific community because of the extremely well-documented damage to my neocortex that would have prevented any kind of hallucination or dream. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, to fully know NDEs, it's been a blessing to me to have access to many, many other people's NDEs. And uh, I think altogether, uh, NDEs are the rock star of emerging understanding of the brain-mind connection and the nature of consciousness. All right. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that one could easily argue that you are the de facto face of NDEs. And I'm sure you get a lot of detractors and, you know, a lot of pressure against you, especially due to your background. How are you handling all that? Well, you know, it's um, the thing is, if you go and look at the medical record of my case, and that is available uh, to anybody, uh, there's a medical case report. It was written by three doctors who were not involved in my care, but who were absolutely fascinated by my recovery. Uh, and that case report, for those who want to access it, you can go to ebenalexander.com, uh, look at my blog postings, and for the blog of September 2018, uh, you will find uh, I comment a lot on that medical case report that had just come out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases. Um, and uh, and I, I steer the layperson to what they need to know and focus on that report. But that report is absolutely stunning. And no matter what all the kind of wildness around my story is and accusations and certain people accuse me of making parts of it up and things like that, none of that is true. And I think if you read the case report, you see very clearly that what happened was actually as a 54-year-old white male, I was driven deep into coma over just a few hours and then spent a week uh, profoundly deep in coma due to a severe uh, meningoencephalitis, a bacterial infection that involved all eight lobes of my brain. And in fact, they go into detail in that case report of how I could not have had a dream or hallucination because of the extensive damage. And I think that's why my, uh, my uh, NDE has been of such value uh, to the scientific community and why they take it so seriously uh, is uh, to have any experience whatsoever in this setting uh, is extraordinary, shocking. Uh, but the biggest miracle, of course, and they point this out in the case report, is my recovery that I came back from this. My doctors estimated while I was deep in coma that I went from a 10% chance of survival down to 2% chance with no chance of recovery. That's why on day seven of coma, they were recommending taking me off the ventilator, stopping the antibiotics, letting nature take its course. And of course, it's then that I started coming back to this world. But when I came back to this world, my brain was absolutely savaged by the experience. I did not even recognize loved ones at the bedside, my mother, my sisters, my sons. I had no idea who these beings were. All I knew was where I'd just been, this extraordinary spiritual experience that I describe in Proof of Heaven. And so that's the reality I faced. And my memories, my language, my knowledge of neuroscience, every bit of that trickled back like a snowfall over two months. And by two months out, everything was back. And not only that, I'd now been to see my doctors, go through the uh, medical records, my scans, all of that. 
um, come to realize just how mysterious this case was. In fact, when the when those three doctors submitted the case report to the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, the peer reviewers said this case is absurd. No one gets this sick from bacterial meningoencephalitis and then has a full recovery. How do you explain it? And the three doctors who had submitted it said it's because of the NDE that he was able to have such a miraculous recovery. So that's where people should be focusing. All the other noise about me and my personal life and everything is just noise. Focus on the objective medical facts of the case report of what these uh, doctors were facing up to uh, in terms of trying to come to an understanding of it. And you realize that it, in many ways, it's a miraculous case of healing that demands explanation. That's something that I realized four months after my coma. I've been terrifically uh, mystified by all this. I just started reading all the NDE literature, realized the similarities and overlap with my own case. Uh, and yet there was that profound mystery of the beautiful young woman on the butterfly wing and things like that, that people who've read Proof of Heaven will fully understand. Uh, and it was really the recognition of who that beautiful spiritual companion was, which came to me in the form of a mailed photograph uh, concerning my birth family four months after my coma. That's when I went, oh, my God, no wonder it seemed way too real to be real. It's because it actually happened in this profound setting. Uh, and of course, there is follow up to the proof of heaven story when you read Map of Heaven, our second book, and then especially my third book written with my uh, life partner, Karen Newell, Living in a Mindful Universe. And that book goes a long way towards fleshing out the further rich details of my story. For example, people often ask, what do your skeptical colleagues think of all this? Well, my skeptical colleagues, the doctors who knew of this case, invited me to speak to the county medical group uh, you know, a few months after my coma to more than 110 uh, physicians and spouses because they knew it was extraordinary. They wanted to hear much more about it too. So the physicians and medical scientists who were familiar with my story were absolutely drawn into the fascination with uh, this kind of miraculous healing. And that's really where people should start this journey, not with any of the noise created in the lay press trying to uh, discredit me and take me down. And, and that's really from one article. Uh, but the, the rest of it has been very supportive. And, the, and certainly in the scientific world, I've had tremendous support uh, in helping to unravel my understanding. I think if you get physicians one-on-one, -on -one, they'll admit that they believe in NDEs because I was out shopping for a house and with the realtor, her husband happened to tag along and he was an emergency room physician and we just got to talk and he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I kind of, I have this podcast and I talk about NDEs. And then he told me, well, I just resuscitated somebody, a young guy from a heart attack recently. And he woke up and started telling me about being on the other side. Right. Well, you're exactly right. I think, uh, most physicians will, you know, agree they've seen something. In fact, in, in the book Proof of Heaven, I talk about a story of terminal lucidity, uh, where uh, a patient who had been very demented and progressively, you know, completely uh, out of it uh, in terms of conscious awareness came back to life uh, right towards the very end of his life with his son present. The reason I put that particular story in there was the son who reported all this to me was a good friend and the chairman of a top neurosurgical training program. Uh, so, you know, who else like me, very skeptical as a materialist trained neuroscientist. And yet you see things that absolutely defy our understanding and that all those millions of cases like that are what we're really trying to answer instead of sweeping them under the carpet. And I would just add parenthetically, uh, a, a quick story uh, to support exactly what you're talking about. I was at a meeting of uh, hospice and palliative care physicians and nurses, et cetera, about three or four years ago. And I was in the session, there were maybe 350, 400 doctors and scientists in there. And the topic was terminal uh, delusions. That was, you know, how to manage so people who get deluded uh, towards the very end of life. And the more stories I heard and the more, more I went, wait a minute, these people need a reminder. So at the end of that session, I stood up, went to the microphone and said, you guys are talking about terminal delusions, but I'll point out that often these are terminal lucidity. 
which are examples of extraordinary healing. They completely debunk the materialist notion that brain creates consciousness. And uh, often, especially in the setting of a loved one who comes uh, to welcome the deceased in the, or the, uh, the dying patient in this process, uh, that is a clue to its authenticity uh, and that these are very real events and, and we should treat them as such. And after that, several other people in the room got up and shared their own similar story of terminal, um, you know, paradoxical lucidity or terminal lucidity. And finally, the guy who was leading the whole session, who happened to have grown up in a Buddhist family, he said, well, you know, I always grew up hearing this stuff from my parents, that you spend your whole life preparing for that moment of death. And yes, I'll have to admit that some of what I've seen uh, reflects that extraordinary kind of uh, presence of soul and that our uh, soul relationships with our loved ones really come to the fore at that moment of death. And it's not because we imagine them because of wishful thinking, but it's because they actually are there for us to help escort us over. Uh, and it was a great admission in this room full of doctors where they shifted from that kind of group perspective of, of course, we're rational scientists and we're not going to accept this woo-woo nonsense to, oh yeah, I've seen this too. And you're absolutely right. Materialist science fails completely. The brain does not create consciousness. There's something much deeper and richer going on. You mentioned terminal care. Do you think that we should rethink end of life or terminal care in general? I think we certainly should. I, our entire society uh, is due to an upgrade in its knowledge and understanding uh, of really kind of the nature of humanity, who we are. You know, the, the materialist notion that I grew up with and was trained under, I spent more than 15 years teaching neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School, certainly thought I knew something about brain, mind, consciousness. And yet uh, that model of, of physicalism or materialism that the you know physical world is all that exists and therefore the brain must somehow muster phenomenal consciousness out of physical matter alone is absolutely false. And uh, the science uh, supporting all this is growing very rapidly. We're leaving materialism in the dust. Uh, that materialist thinking of you know, should have died more than 80 years ago with the advent of quantum physics, because quantum physics is right at the core of trying to teach us most profoundly that consciousness is unified, that we really share one mind. And it completely flips the notion most people have about the physical world generating the mental when you realize that every bit of it is within a mental universe, top-down causality, that there's a true will of the universe and that we as sentient beings have access to that uh, mental layer. Uh, and it has tremendous implications. The scientific study along these lines fully supports the reality not only of near-death and shared-death experiences. Shared-death happened to people who were you know, normal, physiologically healthy, but they're the same phenomena of near-death, uh, but they usually are associated with a loved one who is passing over. And they don't have to be in the same location. That loved one could be a thousand miles away. A shared death experience, their soul comes along, takes the soul of the bystander along, even to the point of witnessing a full-blown life review of the departing soul before the bystander soul comes back to this world. These kind of things. And then also... Um, Past life memories in children suggestive of reincarnation. When you get into the deep, radical scientific study of these kind of human reports, you find actually one of the strongest pieces of well-studied phenomena supporting the reality of mind is fundamental in the universe. It's shared and something that supports eternal soul and not something that you know ends at the death of a physical body comes from that literature on uh, uh, past life memories in children suggestive of reincarnation. And for your audience members who are serious about this, have a scientific interest in reincarnation, I would send them to uvadops.org. That's the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies.org. You'll find a tremendous number of scientific papers. There are, there are links to books, uh, all kinds of things that you can get right from that website. They go a long way towards supporting the reality of reincarnation. And of course, our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is a, a kind of a, a, a catch-all book that supports every bit of this, talks about the science and spirituality, how they're uniting, uh, how quantum physics is relevant to it all. Uh, I mean, all of this is stuff that's available to people out there. You can go to ebonalexander.com, look at my interviews, presentations, a tremendous amount of free material on that website. 
Uh, I would also encourage anyone who's very interested in pursuing this deeply. Uh, another free resource is a set of webinars that Karen and I did during the uh, first 20 months of the pandemic. And you can access that through unitedinhopeandhealing.com. Uh, and that series of interviews with world leaders in, in uh, uh, consciousness, uh, like Bruce Grayson, Pim Van Lommel, and others. Many experiencers were interviewed in that set of interviews. So go to United in Hope and Healing to learn a tremendous amount more from free video interviews. All right. You mentioned that it's realer than real over there. And my guests have said that it's more real than it is here. And I think some would even say it's like a joke over here. Can you give us a mechanism of how is it more real there than it is here? Well, it's, it's, you got to remember that uh, our version of reality, what we witness is a, a, a sentient being inside a physical body is a heavily, heavily coded um, kind of model. Uh, our visual input is all heavily kind of constructed. Most of what we claim to see is actually filled in by the brain based on expectation. Uh, and not only that, uh, we have a very, very limited uh, kind of set of wavelengths, for example, that we can discern compared to all the electromagnetic radiation out there. Things that we hear, all of this material, this information comes in and is heavily coded, not only by our sensory systems, the eyes and ears and what have you, but also by our brains, all down to this tiny little trickle of an apparent here and now and sense of self. Whereas in an NDE, what's happened is your conscious awareness has actually been liberated from the shackles of the physical brain and body and of this uh, apparent here and now of the physical realm, liberated to such a rich extent that, for example, commonly more than half of NDEers report a life review. The life review is an astonishing example of how all of the events of our life can be presented to us in this incredibly rich and complete fashion uh, where we relive the events not only from our own perspective, but from the emotional perspective of those around us who were affected by our actions and thoughts. I mean, the life review, as it's commonly described by indie ears, is a perfect example of this overwhelming flow of consciousness. I often say it's like drinking pure consciousness through a fire hose, this extraordinary level of, of reality presented to us that is doesn't demand the simple little trickle of the narrative of our day-to-day -day lives living this consensus reality in these bodies. But this extraordinary flood of information, it's why they're, they're often described as ineffable, as indescribable. It's because our modes of knowing are completely different there. I, I often talk about what's uh, what I uh, have called uh, knowledge through identification. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening during that life review. You become these other beings. You become the whole scene in terms of your grokking the deep and profound uh, lessons to be learned from that event. And people who have been through this will tell you it's, it's complete. It's not like anything is left out. And that can be even in a case of, say, a cardiac arrest where someone is unconscious just for a few minutes. They're, uh, you know, qualify as being, um, uh, their brain is no longer working in any kind of fashion that could give a, a hallucination or even give them sensory input to process what's going on around them. That's why so many of these NDE accounts are so amazing because people then come back and report all of that. But even in that very brief interval of a cardiac arrest, people can have a profound, complete NDE that changes their life. Not only that, the memories from NDEs in several scientific papers, and this is something we discussed uh, at the beginning of our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, several scientific papers support that these memories from NDEs are much more like lived memories of very uh, kind of big, major, uh, sometimes traumatic events in our lifetime. That's why we don't forget them. And the memories are not altered. A general principle in neuroscience is every time you revisit a memory, you change it a little bit, you alter it. Uh, but that is not true for NDEs. Uh, Bruce Grayson and uh, another group in Italy have done very good studies where they basically found that these memories are stable over decades. Uh, they do not change. And that would be my experience. I mean, the profound spiritual experience I describe in Proof of Heaven is as sharp in my memory right this moment as if it happened yesterday. Uh, and yet, strangely enough, 
uh, there was a period of 36 hours after I was extubated, after I woke up with a, a very damaged brain in that ICU bed, where I was in and out of this uh, paranoid, delusional, uh, psychotic nightmare, what's called an ICU psychosis. I know what that looks like, but that was nowhere near the ultra reality of the deep experience, deep in coma, when my medical record showed my entire neocortex was too inactivated. To, to do any kind of dream or hallucination or confabulation. So that's why I think these, these kind of uh, uh, journeys and stories are so profound. I, I can see exactly how mind brings so much to the scientific literature and especially having that recovery, uh, you know, that is inexplicable by any kind of uh, Western medical interpretation of the event. There's no case like mine in the medical literature. Although when you research NDEs, you'll find other cases of miraculous healing. For example, Anita Morjani, who wrote the book Dying to Be Me, and she had an advanced stage four lymphoma that should have killed her within hours. Uh, that was in February 2006 when she reported to an emergency room in Hong Kong. I presented with her several times. She's a close friend. She's doing very well because she knew when she came back to this world, the cancer would disappear. Or likewise, that story of Mary C. Neal. She wrote a beautiful book uh, called To Heaven and Back. She's an orthopedic surgeon, had a warm water drowning incident where she was underwater more than 30 minutes back in 1999 in Chile. You don't just kind of come back from that. And yet she had a complete recovery. These kind of cases are probably the biggest lesson that the public at large need to take away from NDEs is the profound implications for healing that we all have for physical, mental, emotional healing. It's ultimately spiritual in nature. And that is one of the deepest lessons that comes out of the NDE literature. You were speaking of memories and basically during your experience, your brain was shut down. So how did you or how were you able to remember all this? Well, this is something we go into in detail in, uh, in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, because the reality is the scientific study of memory, uh, and neurosurgeons have suspected this for a long time, because in spite of more than a million brain resections done over the last century, there's never been a reported case of documented swathes of long-term memories that disappeared with the resection of any part of the brain. So it's been a very uh, kind of suspicious model to think memories were even stored in the brain. And yet that's such a cornerstone of, um, of modern materialist neuroscience that nobody ever questioned it. And yet when you look at those uh, 2,500 cases of past life memories in children, suggestive of a reincarnation that you can find at the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies website, uvadops.org, you realize, of course, the brain was not the repository of memories between lives because you don't have a memory. You don't have a brain between lives. Uh, and then in, in Living in a Mindful Universe, we go into a lot of the other evidence showing that, that memory is not even stored in the brain. Uh, it's stored in what I would call the uh, quantum hologram in a field of all potentiality for sentient being uh, kind of events of life. Uh, and that's where our brain works as a filter. That's what we describe in detail in the book. So the brain's not creating consciousness. It's allowing this primordial form of consciousness that in many ways is unified. Uh, you know, as quantum physicists were recognizing a century ago, uh, you cannot get behind consciousness. It is not something derivative from matter. Consciousness is much more fundamental in the universe. And as much as some members of the scientific community have refused to accept that, the line of reasoning and what's happened with quantum physics over the last few decades has increasingly proved there's no other interpretation than that mind is primary and the brain is a filter. Uh, and in fact, it's a very limiting and constricting filter. And that's why meditation is so important and centering prayer. Other ways of going within are actually ways of getting out to the universe at large. And of course, uh, NDEs are a beautiful example of how fully that process can liberate your conscious awareness. Uh, when you die, you're, you're liberated from the prison. And that is the story that's been told by near-death experiences going back thousands of years, no matter what their belief systems, religions, et cetera, going in. There, I've, I've known accounts of many atheists who had profound NDEs, and they come away realizing they were dead wrong. They may not necessarily agree with religions because in many ways, no religion gets it perfectly right. Uh, there's uh, another book I often recommend about that by Christopher Copps, 
C-O-P-P-E-S, and that book is called The Essence of Religions, and it basically compares uh, the five major world faiths with all the spiritual lessons that come out of the modern NDE community, uh, which essentially uh, the NDE community really points to a consolidation of the deepest mystical traditions of all the great faiths in a very unifying way, essentially telling us the golden rule, you know, treat others as you would like to be treated, which is there in some form in all the religious faiths, uh, is actually written into the fabric of the universe in the form of that life review uh, and where you, you feel the impact of your actions and thoughts on others from their emotional perspective. Uh, and that golden rule is, is in my point of view, the uh, really at, at the very center of the deep lessons coming from NDEs. And it's a lesson this world needs to heed and pay attention to now. And we all should, because NDEs really show us what is the background phenomena of what we can all expect when we leave the physical world. So are you saying that if you cut out any part of the brain, you will not lose long-term memory? Is that what the research shows? Correct. That you will never take out a swathe of long-term memories. Now, it is important to point out um, a uh, someone who was a colleague of my father's, Evan Alexander Jr., was a renowned, globally renowned neurosurgeon uh, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, but anyway, a colleague of his named William Scoville operated on a patient uh, known as HM back in 1953. Uh, and inadvertently damaged both uh, medial temporal lobes, the hippocampus in both sides was damaged. And that patient lost the ability to convert short-term to long-term memory. Uh, so yes, that is something you can do. You can interfere with memory. But in terms of the model of, of assuming that long-term memories are stored somewhere in the brain, uh, the deep truth from modern uh, scientific assessment of consciousness is no. Forget about it. Uh, you're not going to find any ultimate place in the brain where the synapses, the neuronal connections, where all of that is going to ultimately explain the long-term memories. They are not being stored there. That's why those incredible memories in the more than 2,500 cases of, of children remembering past lives uh, can be then validated by study that reveals that those past lives, people actually existed uh, and explain how those memories survive between lives, sometimes over decades or even centuries. Uh, those memories are preserved and then come through again <clears throat> in the new uh, incarnation. That's an amazing revelation. What about short-term memory? Does short-term memory kind of work through the brain and then it gets converted to long-term memory into the astral world or something? Well, I think short-term memory does involve some brain processes, but uh, ultimately uh, every bit of it is uh, something that will only emerge as we better understand this filtering mechanism, uh, how the you know quantum ion states of ion channels and synaptic clefts, which are absolutely ruled by uh, quantum principles. And that's where all of our perceptions would lie, looked at from the outside, um, is in those uh, kind of quantum states of all those... Uh, you know, 110 billion neurons in the brain, uh, each with 10,000 average connections and firing at multiple times per second. That creates a very complex kind of uh, uh, energy of information transfer and manipulation, some of which is happening in the brain, but I think a tremendous amount of it is allowing for that top-down filtration from the mental layer of the universe. Uh, and that's what we really need to discern as scientists is how that mechanism works. But the question that we have access to non-local consciousness, to consciousness that can survive, you know, between lifetimes, that's what we, we need to focus on, are those tremendous powers of consciousness that conventional neuroscience sometimes tries to sweep under the rug and pretend do not exist at all. But denying the evidence is no way of getting to the truth. Do you think that those memories are stored in our own personal memory bank, like our higher self, or it's in a, some other kind of memory place where anybody can get access to it? Well, as we've already covered, you know, when you look at life reviews writ large and reported by thousands over thousands of years across all continents, you start to realize that the boundaries of self are a myth that is exposed within the life review. 
So right there, you've got plenty of evidence that that kind of information is probably something that is group. It's like uh, Carl Jung talked about the collective unconscious, uh, that there is indeed a uh, this quantum hologram that I'm talking about uh, is a storage space that's kind of shared. But the interesting thing is even a lot of the scientists who study all of these cases and try and make sense of consciousness, um, they tend to kind of default to, well, it's not really personality that is preserved from one life to the next, but there's something else that is preserved. And certainly when you talk to, you know, these thousands of children with past life memories, they can have very strong phobias, behaviors, et cetera, that are all linked to as if they had lived that those events before, not just that they had some casual, uh, you know, dip into that information part of the field, but they had actually lived it. And they had that very real uh, kind of sense of having lived it. And that's where the phobias and other strong behaviors can come from. So I would say that I call it kind of a viscous nature to these soul lines, um, you know, that there's a, a tendency of preservation, even though our soul kind of rejoins that huge collective at the time of bodily death, we reunite with souls of departed loved ones. They may have died, as in the case of uh, the terminal lucidity case in Proof of Heaven, uh, that uh, the dying patient's mother had passed over 65 years earlier during the Holocaust. So uh, we're not assuming that her that soul of the, of the, uh, mother who died in the Holocaust was sitting there watching her clock waiting. When is my son going to be here? Because time flow is very different in that realm. I call it deep time. There's a completely different ordering of events and deep time allows for uh, people who have life reviews to come back into this life with a very shifted and transformed worldview. It also allows for the evolution of all consciousness, which I think is what is going on here. But I think the short answer to your question is there is a very strong sense that there's some preservation of kind of a soul line, that someone lived a previous life, they now have memories of that. Uh, important to point out, those memories are usually covered over by age five or six. That's what Dr. Ian Stevenson and Dr. Jim Tucker will tell you, is if you run and recover these memories from these children, remember that they will be covered over by natural processes. That's why most of us as adults don't have these memories of past lives. They've been covered over. Uh, there's also that interesting phenomenon of what's called the amnesia of childhood that most people will admit to, and that is that we don't seem to remember very readily things that happened before age five or six. The reason for that is our memory retrieval process starts to convert much more to a linguistically based process. And that's why it becomes very difficult to remember things from that earliest era, especially when there were processes going on that were covering over memories we had from between lives and from past lives as a young child. But the important thing is if you have access to a young child today, someone between the ages or two of uh, between ages two and six, I would encourage you to, without leading anywhere, just uh, ask them, especially when it's around bedtime and they're kind of sleepy and they're kind of on that veil, that hypnagogic space between waking and dreaming, you know, where were you before you were here? Something like that. Don't lead anything, and but just be ready for interesting answers. That's all I can tell you. In our culture, the more we wake up to this and learn to be attentive when children report to us that they're, they've been out playing with grandma, even though they never knew grandma because she died before they were born. Uh, but they report very uh, faithfully what she looks like and her manner and all of that because they're playing with her soul. Those kind of things are real stories that we need to pay a lot more attention to. Do you believe in more of a dualistic system like we have our brain and then our spirit or our consciousness is working through our brain, like as if our brain is a transceiver for our consciousness? Or do you believe that actually our brain is a manifestation of our consciousness in this realm? Well, I would say that discussion goes way down into all the very intro. We could probably spend a few hours uh, <laughs> trying to answer exactly that. Um, but I think uh, kind of in a nutshell, the way I would explain it uh, is that um, uh, we, we have access to this uh, kind of quantum hologram. There's this top-down ordering that I'm talking about from the mental layer. Uh, and the brain works as the filter that allows for that kind of thing to happen. Um, 
if you can get back to your question, there was a way that you phrased your question that uh, would really help me to kind of fine tune my answer. So I was trying to say, do you think that our brain, you know, we're separate, like a dual system? Dual our brain is here and then okay, we just yeah. kind of receive our consciousness or right. is our is it all one and the brain is actually a manifestation of the consciousness, just like a flame is right. a manifestation what you're of combustion? At here is, is the kind of philosophical issue, is this some form of dualism? Because philosophically speaking, you can go back, for example, to Rene Descartes, the renowned French philosopher, uh, you know, the 17th century. Uh, and he was one who really kind of steered us officially along this pathway of dualism realizing that there is brain and there is mind. They seem to work in parallel. Nobody really understands it. And ever since then, we've had these discussions back and forth about, you know, how much is brain? How much is mind? How do they interact? All of that kind of thing. But in many ways, I think has led to a lot of confusion. And uh, uh, the reason I say that is we've, we've spent most of the late 20th century, a lot of scientists would have said, we've actually gotten to the point where we now know that brain's the only thing that exists. And all you have to do is explain brain and a natural explanation of mind will emerge from that. And yet people who study consciousness realize, no, 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 that fails completely. The brain is not the producer of consciousness at all. In fact, from their viewpoint, materialism, materialist neuroscience, you know, that the physical world is all that exists, has died. As I said, it died 80 years ago with the advent of quantum physics. And yet, if you look at the quantum physical world, they're in extreme dispute and confusion and hand-waving all around the measurement paradox and trying to figure out what happens when a scientist intervenes with the natural world in doing an experiment. And they acknowledge that certain forms of that experiment are mental in nature and don't necessarily come from any aspect of physical world. Uh, but the deeper we get into this kind of very profound discussion about it, the more you realize, and more I've come to realize, and certainly hundreds of scientists who study the mind-body question, and I would steer your listeners to GalileoCommission.org to learn a tremendous amount more about what I'm talking about right now. But many of them have come to realize that these dualisms, in many ways, just provide band-aids uh, that are not effective. The more you try and tie everything to the material world, uh, the more you find that you're not going to be able to answer the big kind of unifying experiences and questions that emerge from human experience. Uh, and that's where, from my point of view, you really have to swing all the way to the end. So we've got materialism, brain creates consciousness at one end. Uh, and as I've said, that fails. Given all the evidence, that fails miserably, although many scientists in the world today who don't know about consciousness don't realize it's a failed system. Then you have this whole line of all these dualities, dualisms, different ways of, of putting brain and mind together. One of the most popular emergent ones now, given that scientists who study this realize you cannot, materialism is dead, doesn't work, uh, but in their dualistic kind of promise, uh, they, they think of panpsychism. Panpsychism is the buzzword. Panpsychism is the admission that there's something about mind that you cannot just reduce to functions of brain, but there's something more to it. And yet, from my point of view, and we discuss this in Living in a Mindful Universe, panpsychism is a very weak uh, uh, answer that falls to the same prey as materialism in general. In panpsychism, you're trying to pretend that there are little elements of proto-consciousness attached to electrons, photons, protons, quarks, etc., and that somehow when you assemble this physical uh, thing, and that includes my brain from the physical matter that makes it up of all those uh, atoms, molecules, etc., that the combination of those proto-consciousness elements is what magically gives you consciousness. And that just doesn't work because uh, materialism itself is the thing that has died. And, and that's where the true power of idealism, seeing the mental layer of the universe, uh, and we're sentient beings, we have access to it, but it's not human consciousness that had to evolve for this to be true. Humans and other sentient beings are just borrowing this layer of integration and assimilation of information from the universe, the mental layer, uh, a very quick scientific uh, essay that will get you on board with quantum physics and the mental layer is an essay by Richard Kahn Henry. It's in the scientific journal Nature in 2005. It's called Mental Universe. You can access it on my web website. There's a, a recommended reading list that has more than 100 chapters, papers, books, et cetera. 
including this reference to the Mental Universe paper by Richard Con Henry. And of course, on my website, you can actually click the links and go directly to the paper uh, in many cases. So it's a very valuable resource. But that Mental Universe, uh, Richard Con Henry, who was the head of, as of, uh, of physics and astrophysics at Johns Hopkins in 2005, he writes a beautiful essay on how quantum physics shows us very clearly that the universe is primarily mental, spiritual in nature. Uh, get used to it. Top-down causation is the way it works. And this is where all of the scientific community who study consciousness is moving along this tremendous pathway. Uh, and in fact, as I said, idealism, which is the exact opposite end of that spectrum of all the dualisms from materialism, idealism really looks at the universe as fundamentally mental, that all of the physical universe emerges from the, uh, from the uh, mental layer. Uh, and that's where it gets to be very, very interesting. And that's why it's been so tough to unravel so far. But with this new viewpoint, it makes a lot more sense. And for the scientists in the crowd who really want to follow the breadcrumbs, just uh, look up Carlo Rovelli's relational interpretation of quantum physics and support that with Bernardo Castrop's metaphysics. Castrop with a K, you can go to bernardocastrop.com to learn more. He's one of the big endorsers of our book, Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, it's because he fully supports this idealism from the viewpoint of quantum physics. And he argues it better than I do, uh, although we address all this in Living in a Mindful Universe. Uh, and we also address it from a multidisciplinary uh, approach, neuroscience and the hard problem of consciousness, uh, philosophy of mind and the binding problem, the apparent unity of consciousness within an individual, all the parapsychological evidence for non-local consciousness, telepathy, precognition, pre-sentiment, uh, uh, psychokinesis, distance healing, power of prayer. All these things are uh, uh, evidence of uh, consciousness beyond the brain, you know, this non-local healing of the one mind. Uh, and of course, then you have quantum physics itself. As I just said, one of the strongest arguments for unity of mind and the uh, kind of eternity of mind that we all share is quantum physics. So um, all of this is kind of consolidated in living in a mindful universe for people who want to learn more. Yeah, I had Dr. Kastrup on as a guest, and I was more of a dualist until I had a conversation with him, and I've kind of changed more to an idealist. Well, I think there's been great damage done by People, people stick to dualisms because they see this world around us and they say, we've got to somehow explain that world around us. And yet materialist model fails miserably. For example, with placebo effect, with spontaneous remission of advanced cancers, infections. Uh, and then, of course, the extraordinary miraculous healing I've already described in near-death experiences like mine, Anita Morjani's, and Mary C. Neal's. There's no way to explain any of that kind of process from a materialist perspective. It just doesn't work. And so the idealist way is a way of taking this top-down organizational principle and realizing that's how things work. Now, there's another place where idealism is the most important answer to the question. And that comes from people like me, scientists who are trying to explain this, who have also experienced alternate realms that are much more real than this one. At the end of the day, uh, you know, all these scientists study consciousness are showing that the, the, these experiences like NDEs are not hallucinations but they need to go full circle and get to the point where they're admitting that more than half of people who have experienced this describe it as more real and detailed and memorable and life-changing than anything they've ever experienced before. So we need to explain those realms. That's where idealism comes in especially handy because you're no longer trying to tie this top-down causality to things that are only existent in the material realm, like brain, mind, and consciousness. Uh, you know, pretended from a materialist position to be all subservient to the material realm. Once you acknowledge these other realms are real, then you truly see why idealism must come into the fore because it's that top-down causality really from the spiritual realm uh, through the mental uh, and into this physical that we have to explain all of it. And then it'll make much more sense. It's having this limited perspective of pretending that we're just explaining our consensus reality in the material realm that's led to all these attempts of Band-Aids on the broken system and the Band-Aids in the form of dualisms uh, that partially answer the question, but then fail at the end of the day. That's why idealism ultimately is the correct answer. I could foresee that in the future, I don't know how far in the future it will be, but at some point we could get to a place where we 
put somebody in some type of NDE-like state, and then they can go and somehow either connect with source or change their thinking or somehow change their consciousness, which will in turn heal their body. Well, I think we're getting to that very rapidly. And what I would argue is that meditation is the way to do that. We're talking about drivers, somehow to drive this state of being out of the consensus material reality, but in a much deeper level like you achieve in a near-death experience. Now, some people have tried to do that with uh, entheogens, with what are commonly called psychedelics. Uh, I would not call them hallucinogens. That's a terrible word because it implies that anything you experience there is a hallucination, whereas I would say that there's a tremendous amount of reality to what we experience there. I'll give a very concrete example. Uh, There's some recent work that's being done out of several centers like Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCLA, looking at uh, psilocybin, which is a serotonin 2A uh, agonist antagonist. Um, and so it's, it's a, a uh, you know, entheogen. It's a, one of these plant medicines that can induce these extraordinary kind of visions. And what I would say is what that's actually doing is it's just thinning the veil, which you can also do through meditation. And in fact, uh, uh, Chris Bache, B-A-C-H-E, in his book, Dark Night, Early Dawn, compares binaural beat brainwave entrainment like sacred acoustics head-to-head with his use of high-dose LSD for spiritual work. And in chapter five of that book, he makes a very compelling argument that you can make at least as much progress, if not more, through the binaural beat brainwave entrainment. So a very strong argument uh, there. And I can tell you, I've had my own experience with 5-methoxy-DMT, one of the most powerful such plant medicines. And to me, it was like looking through a tiny keyhole, trying to discern what's on the other side. I'm convinced that, yes, you are visualizing uh, in a very limited form the same kind of realm, that a quantum hologram that's accessed through an NDE. But the psychedelics only give you the tiniest little glimmer of it compared to the sweeping panoramic penthouse view that you get through a full-blown NDE. And what Karen and I have done in our workshops, what we did in our book, Living the Mindful Universe, is bring this technology of sacred acoustics. Uh, people can go to sacredacoustics.com to learn more, but bring that phenomenal power of binaural beat brainwave entrainment uh, to people to use uh, in this form of diving deep, of traversing the veil. Um, and, and just to kind of finish this thought, what those uh, psychedelic researchers have done is shown that one or two or maybe three doses of psilocybin in the proper therapeutic setting are enough to completely cure people of addictions to opioids, to nicotine, which is the most one of the most physiologically addictive substances known, alcohol, also debilitating fear of death in cancer patients, terminal cancer patients. These have all been very successfully treated uh, in large numbers of patients with psilocybin in that therapeutic setting. The interesting thing is you don't take the psilocybin every day for this effect. You take it a few times. But then you're cured. And, and what I would argue is I think we get the very same benefit through the sacred acoustics, through binaural beat brainwave entrainment. We know in our workshops, we've had tremendous progress in people trying to cultivate uh, NDEs through their own meditative experience. In fact, we've used the NDE scale that Bruce Grayson developed uh, to try and compartmentalize how people have gained tremendous things through meditation, achieving the same kind of goals that people can get through an NDE. Now, I've never fully duplicated the full-blown ultra-reality of my near-death experience through meditation, but I've done a tremendous amount of work in meditation through sacred acoustics in the last uh, few years to kind of uncover and unpack and reunite with those uh, beautiful uh, guardians. Uh, and guides of my NDE uh, to help in living my life uh, in, in, in the present. Uh, and likewise, I would say that many of the people on uh, Sacred Acoustics, her, her um, uh, website, a lot of her practitioners around the world have come to report similar benefits. Uh, so I think that you can achieve all this kind of drive and uh, this connection with souls of departed loved ones and with higher soul and guidance through meditation. And, and that's why I think sacredacoustics.com is such a valuable resource. That's where we often uh, send people to learn more about this. And uh, that's what we've done in our workshops. And 
play shops around the world is try and share this technology, because I think we're getting very close to a technology that does work to drive these states. There's, there's a beautiful pilot study in the peer-reviewed medical literature supporting sacred acoustics tones for alleviating anxiety in a very busy Manhattan psychiatric practice. That peer-reviewed report was written by Dr. Anna Yusum, came out in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases in February 2020. And in that case report, I mean, I'm sorry, in that uh, pilot study, they refer to a 26% reduction in symptoms of anxiety uh, in her psychiatric practice over two weeks' time by listening to the sacred acoustics tone in addition to the standard psychotherapy. Standard psychotherapy alone only gave a 7%. Uh, reduction versus over two weeks, this uh, 26% reduction seen in the study group. So uh, that's just the beginning of how powerful binaural beat brainwave entrainment is. And I believe it's because it's influencing circuits in the lower brainstem, uh, which is what is liberating conscious awareness uh, compared to every other sound you may have heard, a chant or anthem or hymn that's processed up in the neocortex that might have engendered a transcendental state. This is far more powerful because when you learn to ride those tones, they're working with your lower brainstem, a circuit that arose more than 300 million years ago. And I believe that's one of the reasons why with the dedicated program of meditation through such techniques as sacred acoustics, people can make tremendous uh, benefit in kind of healing themselves and connecting with this higher soul. Since the brain produces DMT and some of my guests have taken DMT and had an D- had an NDE like experience. Do you think the brain produces that molecule in order for you to cross over or thin the veil? Well, there's no question DMT, uh, you know, originates in certain cells in the brain and there's a lot of discussion about its, uh, um, origin from the pineal gland. Uh, but I, my own feeling is that that is a red herring. Uh, you know, as, as I've said, my own use of 5-methoxy-DMT, which is the most powerful form of that molecule, uh, only gave me the tiniest little glimpse uh, of that kind of afterlife realm that paled in, in horrific insignificance compared to the natural NDE. So, and, and plus the, the, a uh, general model in, in uh, consciousness studies is that DMT has its activity mainly working through receptors in the neocortex. And of course, in my case, this is well documented in that case report by doctors who have studied my own, my case, they realized that there was no way for any part of my neocortex to be participating uh, in that extraordinary rich and ultra real uh, set of visions and experience that I had. But in, in a nutshell, I think the whole DMT thing uh, is in many ways a red herring. It's misleading in so many ways. And no, you cannot explain the more phenomenal and profound aspects of, of literally tens of thousands of NDEs out there needing to be explained uh, through some simple molecular explanation like DMT. I don't expect you to know any of my background because we just met today, but I'm a chiropractor and I used to work for a neurologist. And being a neurologist, a lot of the medications are the same medications used for psychological treatments. They kind of cross boundaries, you know, some for neurology, some for psychological. I feel pretty aware that you have a great knowledge of most of the medications out there. Is there any medication prescribed that would give somebody an NDE-like experience? Well, I would say right now uh, there's really not. Um uh, certainly, some people talk about MDMA as, uh, uh, and that's another drug that I, I think it's very good that it's being researched. It shows tremendous promise in alleviating uh, PTSD and other addictive type symptoms. And luckily, the FDA is going to, uh, uh, I think, completely greenlight MDMA. Uh, it's certainly it's it's a kind of a, a hallucinogenic drug that can have a very powerful kind of love enhancing uh, empathy connect connecting a type, kind of a mindset. Uh, so potentially something like that uh, takes us more toward that kind of infinitely loving feeling. But I would say from having experienced what I did in the, uh, uh, in, in the NDE experience, 
of bathing in that ocean of unconditional love that I don't think any substance can ever truly get you there. But again, I think we all as sentient beings uh, have the power of going within consciousness if we're not just restricted by some kind of molecular manipulation, but in fact are really using that lower brainstem circuit to liberate our conscious awareness. There, I think we might start to truly duplicate the full-blown power of an NDE. Uh, from my point of view, it's going to best be accomplished through a dedicated program of cultivating these kind of things through meditation and centering prayer uh, than I believe is on the immediate horizon for any kind of molecular assistance. I don't remember exactly how you said it, but I like what you were saying is that we have to go within to be able to get without. Well, that's very much the case. Once you realize that all of the out there, and Karen and I call it in our book, the supreme illusion. The supreme illusion is when you realize that as much as the brain and mind convinces that all the out there is out there, what you're actually experiencing is only a mental model. It's within. Every bit of the out there is ultimately just in here. And once you get that figured out, you start realizing how much power you have over that out there by gaining this kind of insight and uh, interaction uh, and assimilation and integration of information uh, with that internal model. Going within is the way to go out into the universe because consciousness, you know, my mind, it, it, we think, you know, as uh, scientists, you know, that it's all being generated here in this three and a half pound gelatinous mass floating in a warm, dark bath in my, uh, inside of my head. Well, this, this material stuff is very, very limited in its extent, but my mind can easily envision the entire universe throughout all of eternity. And uh, mind is this incredibly, uh, in many ways, kind of underappreciated uh, aspect of who we are. Meditation, going within, I would say all of that work with the psychedelics, as I just mentioned, for healing is really just a way of opening that kind of gate, enabling our conscious awareness to flow into that primordial mind that has tremendously more uh, kind of access to information and ability to influence our emerging reality. That's why going within can be such an incredibly powerful tool. And you'll find that you can absolutely kind of shift your emerging reality as you go within and start to play with it, start to realize you have help in, in those regions. When you learn to ride the sacred acoustics tones, for example, uh, and just let it all go. First step being to recognize that voice in our head, you know, that little running stream of thoughts. So many of us identify with that. We think that's who I am is that running stream of thought. Well, I love how Michael Singer in his book, The Untethered uh, Soul, he calls that voice of in our heads, the annoying roommate. Hmm. And that's the very first thing. When I go into deep meditation, I let my annoying roommate, the voice in my head, the Evan Alexander voice, the ego, let it state an intention, make a request, but then it goes into timeout because there are far grander aspects of who I am and my existence by going much deeper and traversing that veil into the realm of the primordial mind, that collective unconscious that Carl Jung talked about. And of course, we've known this for thousands of years. That's why people would pray. They would go within. As uh, Christ said, the kingdom of God lies within us all. Well, yes, there's some deep and profound truth to that because as modern science of consciousness is coming to realize with idealism and filter theory of brain, as we explain fully in living in a mindful universe, uh, mind is ultimately what exists. And we have tremendous power to interact with that mind. Uh, and that's where we can uh, start to influence our emerging reality in a much more profound fashion. So what do you think is the point of all of this? And what I mean by that is why do we keep reincarnating and keep coming back over and over again? Very important to point out, this is not a view of reincarnation. This is something we stressed in, in my second book, The Map of Heaven. This is not some blind mechanistic wheel of reincarnation that you're trying to get off of. But this, this notion of reincarnation very much involves the concept of grace and of that divine intervention in many ways of seeing that we're co-creators of our emerging reality with that infinitely loving and healing God force that so many indie ears have come to know and kind of bathe in that ocean of love and come back to this world. That's why they have no fear of death. Uh, and this, I think, is where uh, this whole thing expands so tremendously is by having this much 
uh, bigger realization of who we are uh, and where this is all headed. And for me, a great realization was when I read a few months after my coma, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin's mid 20th century book, The Phenomenon of Man. And in that discussion in the mid 20th century, uh, everybody was into Darwinian evolution and trying to figure out how that works scientifically. And the, the Chardin, <coughs> excuse me, was a scientist. He was a paleontologist. He was also a French Jesuit priest. So he had experience in spirituality. <coughs> and he came to see that evolution was happening, but it was much, much grander than this puny little version of biological evolution on Earth. That in fact, all of consciousness throughout the cosmos was evolving. And this was very similar to a vision I had in my NDE in the core realm uh, that I call the Indra's net vision. And it was one of this beautiful tapestry. It was like seeing a, an ultimate higher dimensional spider web with all of the webs and tendrils representing sentient beings in their progressive incarnations. And all, all of it led to this glowing center that to me, <coughs> um, again, was that Christ consciousness that Deschardin talks about. And I believe that's what's going on. You know, that old saying, all politics is local. Well, uh, likewise, all evolution of consciousness throughout the universe, which I think is the reason the universe exists, is nothing more than individual beings evolving as souls, growing into that oneness with the divine, which takes several incarnations. You can't do it in just one incarnation. It takes multiple. And so past life issues are what are reflected in our current life challenges. Excuse me. And that's why um, there's just so much value to seeing this bigger picture of self. Just in the world of transpersonal psychology, people realize that through hypnotic regression, meditation, what have you, we can recover these past life memories. And they have a lot to do with the issues facing us in this life. Do you think that problems from the past lives are stuff that we still need to resolve now, or is it getting tangled up and causing problems in this life? Well, I would say issues in a past life have a great chance of being resolved in a life review. Ideally, as my partner Karen often teaches, the best thing is a daily review or a weekly review. That is, don't let this baggage you know, of treating others poorly don't let that build up over time. Go on and deal with it in this lifetime. In fact, often we say that the greatest lesson that comes from knowing about NDEs and studying them is not what happens when I die, but it's how do I best live this life today and make the most out of it and do most of what I came here to do. And that's where NDEs offer tremendous lessons. That's where we can get rid of this so that by the time you have your life review, there shouldn't be too much baggage, baggage left to deal with. But that's what it's there for. It's there as a mid-course correction so that in your next lifetime, you don't necessarily have to reshuffle all the big issues you didn't deal with effectively in this lifetime. But you can process them in some sense in the infinitely loving and healing light of that realm. That's the ambience of, of life reviews. Um, and that's where they can be processed. But if we don't process them there, then yes, they, they can be re-dealt as issues in a next lifetime. What do you think about past life regression hypnotherapy to go back and deal with those past life problems? You think that's a good idea? I think uh, hypnotic regression to address past lives is a very, uh, very good and effective way that's been proven in the hands of many therapists. Of course, you have to check up your therapist and make sure that they have experience and, uh, you know, there are many out there, but uh, I've had a few past life uh, review um, hypnotic regressions of my own. Uh, they've given me some very interesting material to work with. Um, you know, the hard part for me as a scientist is trying to vet it and prove that those came from an actually lived past life. And I think that can be a very, very big impediment if you limit yourself to just trying to prove it all objectively much better to kind of roll with the flow and see what feels uh, natural and feels like your true issues. And I think people can often do that with a good uh, past life regression uh, therapist. Hmm. I know the Michael Newton Institute hmm. uh, is certainly a good repository uh, for people who want to learn a lot more about that and access a good therapist who can help not only with past life reviews, but also 
between life uh, regressions. Well, I'm already over time. I have four pages of questions and I've only done page one. So I hope you will be willing to come back someday as well as I even tried out your free meditation this morning on sacred acoustics and we didn't get to talk about that either. So I hope that perhaps you, I, and Karen can even do a podcast just on sacred sacred acoustics someday. We should absolutely do that. And I, I'm hoping Karen will be willing to do that. It's really all Karen's work. She and her business partner, Kevin Cossey, they're the ones who make up sacred acoustics. Uh, I don't have any uh, kind of official role in that company other than serving as kind of an alpha tester. Mm -hmm. uh, I love sacred acoustics. I use it an hour or two a day. I've been doing that for more than a decade now. Uh, I, I really would have trouble living without it. I mean, to me, it's an incredibly powerful technology. But yes, I agree with you. Let's get back together with Karen uh, and have another discussion and really go into the nuts and bolts of meditation and how people can use this in their own lives. All right. One quick question about the meditation. Was that your voice on there doing the kind of OM chanting? No, the, the OM is something that Karen and Kevin have come up with. Uh, and the OM for me is, is a very powerful. It's something I use a lot. I find that at the beginning of the meditation, first thing is my, um, you know, that little linguistic voice in my head will make an intention, state a request. Then it goes into timeout. But then I just ride those tones. And part of riding the tones begins with that alm process. So that I will do a deep, true verbalizing of alm um, to resonate with that. And in many ways, that connects my mind, my brain, my body the here and now, but it connects it with that uh, kind of outside of time and space, infinite realm of primordial minds. So they're all connected across the board, just with a physical action of that oming at the beginning. And from there on out, I'm just riding the tones. And, and that little voice in my head is no longer there like, what are you doing wrong? How, you know, what's wrong with this? What's wrong with that? As asking and questioning, that voice is gone because uh, you find there's far greater wisdom coming from the universe when that little voice is out of the way. Uh, just open yourselves to ride the tones and let that creative inspiration come in. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? I think the most important thing is that uh, no soul is to be left behind. This awakening of humanity is something that each and every one of us can participate in. You don't have to wait for the world at large to catch up. And that's where I think today, dedicating yourself to finding your true purpose in life, to spending some time in meditation every day, uh, connecting with guides and the souls of departed loved ones, uh, really exploring that primordial mind is a gift you can give yourself that will ultimately bring true healing, wholeness, wellness, uh, and a sense of great satisfaction and understanding of one's purpose in life through uh, this uh, dedicated effort. All right, Dr. Alexander, thank you for that message. And thank you again so much for being my guest. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best. Well, Jeff, thanks. And I look forward to next time, hopefully with Karen. Likewise. That will make it far more interesting. Likewise. Thank you very much for having me on. Mm -hmm. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.